Now that Washington has approved the distribution of F-16 fighter jets to Ukraine, when will Kyiv get them? The training will be followed by the transfer as we work with Congress to effectuate that and with our allies. Um, you know, we underlined, underscored, and put an exclamation point on that this week. Plus, what's the broader impact of the ruble's devaluation this week? Well, my first reaction that um, the policy framework is beginning to disintegrate. So to me, that's the most important signal. And later in the program, an update on American reporter Evan Gershkovich, who's being held in a Russian prison. Today is Friday, August 18th. From the Voice of America, this is Flashpoint Ukraine. Good evening. I'm Steve Miller in Washington. The United States has given the nod to allies Denmark and the Netherlands to send F-16 fighter jets to Ukraine. It's not immediately clear when Ukraine may receive the jets, which it has been seeking for a long time to counter Russia's air superiority. But speaking to reporters on Friday, U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan did provide a somewhat broad timeline. Back at the G7 in Hiroshima, President Biden indicated uh, both to his colleagues, his allies, and to the world that he would support an effort to train Ukrainian pilots on F-16s. What we did this week is formalize through a letter from Secretary Blinken to his counterparts uh, in Europe that upon the completion of that training, the United States would be prepared in consultation with Congress to approve third-party transfer of F-16 aircraft to Ukraine. That is the natural extension of what the president announced in Hiroshima. There have, for reasons I don't fully understand, been questions about whether we were actually going to do that. So to put all of those questions to rest, that in fact, the training will be followed by the transfer as we work with Congress to effectuate that and with our allies. Um, you know, we underlined, underscored, and put an exclamation point on that this week. And to get more details, I called up VOA Eastern Europe Bureau Chief Miroslava Gangadze. I talked to Yuri Ignat, the spokesman of the Air Force uh, Command of the Armed Forces of Ukraine uh, today, and he was very hopeful and thankful. He was telling me that Ukraine uh, was waiting for this decision by U.S. uh, for long months and uh, that uh, the Ukrainians asked for F-16s uh, even uh, just on that the, when the full-scale invasion of Ukraine started, and finally that decision uh, is uh, is made, and they are very happy about that. Uh, the issue that they have right now is uh, that they have to train. Uh, in parallel of fighting the war and defending Ukraine. And there are not enough pilots who uh, have a language skills ability and and the fighting and flying skills ability. They have to combine two and they have to send them uh, away for at least uh, between four and six months, that assessment, um, that's what they assess. So this is the difficult, difficult task. And uh, Ukrainian pilots right now, at the moment, did not yet even started their training. Um, um, he said that Ukrainians are taking steps to prepare their infrastructure 
uh, he said it, it is very difficult for them uh, to to do um, fighting and prepare infrastructure. However, they do what they can. And uh, as well as uh, they are um, training their, their, their pilots uh, and doing their homework. Um, there are some um, hints that Ukrainians are looking for possibly other planes as well and some European planes. And maybe in the seeable future, uh, there will be some announcement of the not just F-16s, but other uh, fighter planes uh, to be delivered to Ukraine. And, and Miroslava, I, I wanted to ask you, you know, one of the discussions around F-16s and, you know, military equipment in general is, is always when were you able to push harder and and get any information in, in terms of of when Ukraine thinks they may actually see the first F-16s? Exactly that question I ask. Um, I ask the uh, spokesman of the uh, Air Force Command, and he told me that since Ukrainian pilots didn't yet started their training, so uh, we are talking about time frame from four to six months from now. So, but he's hoping that uh, the first pilots who will go on training will be able to bring those planes. The first set of planes to Ukraine. And he said they will definitely make a difference on a battlefield. Uh, even the small number of planes would make a difference. Miroslava, turning our discussion to the actual combat on the battlefield, the Washington Post on Thursday released an article citing five anonymous sources familiar with intelligence assessments of Ukraine's counteroffensive. And they said that it's likely that the Ukrainian forces will not reach the city of Militopol. And National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan responded to that at a press conference earlier on Friday. So I'm not going to speak to intelligence reports. I will say that over the course of the past two years, there have been a lot of analyses of how this war would unfold coming from a lot of quarters. And we've seen numerous uh, changes in those analyses over time as dynamic battlefield conditions change. So what we have said from multiple podiums and multiple briefings remains the same, which is we're doing everything we can to support Ukraine and its counteroffensive. We're not going to handicap the outcome. We're not going to predict what's going to happen because this war has been inherently unpredictable. Uh, and that's all I can say today, other than I believe and have confidence in the capacity and especially the bravery of the Ukrainian fighters uh, to continue to make progress on the battlefield. Miroslava, have Ukrainian officials responded to this? I have not seen the response on the from the military officials. However, I have to say that Ukrainian counteroffensive in the southeast of the country has some significant tactical progress. And the military experts are um, uh, saying that uh, it shows a wider uh, degradation of defending Russian uh, forces. So the Institute um, for the Study of War uh, recently said a push forward by Ukrainian troops on Donetsk-Zaporizhia border and in the Zaporizhia region may mean they can operate past the defense a part of Russia's defensive um, uh, minefields. So it's it possible that the article is a, a true assessment of the situation on the battlefield, but Ukrainians are making some, some progress. 
my sources even few months ago were not very optimistic in Ukrainian um, Ukrainian military were not very optimistic about reaching Melitopol anyway so the question is who put those goals and do we know exactly what Ukrainians wanted to achieve and really quickly Miroslava I understand Moscow is saying that there was another drone attack in the city what do we know attacks in Moscow um, are not achieving much tactically but it is psychological warfare ukrainians are showing that the war can come to um where uh, it started uh, in the heart of the kremlin uh, it's sending a powerful message and questions uh, putin's ability to protect the population that's what um the observers are saying about this drone strikes in moscow around moscow and uh, on the Black Sea and Carriage Bridge. Miroslava Gengadze is VOA's Eastern Europe Bureau Chief. Miroslava, thank you very much for all your time this week. Thank you. The first vessel that used Ukraine's Black Sea corridor is crossing through Turkey's Bosphorus Strait. That's according to Reuters footage that was released on Friday. The Hong Kong flag Joseph Schultz container ship that left the Russian-blocked Ukrainian Black Sea port of Odessa earlier this week had been in the port since February 23rd of 2022. That's the day before the start of Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Ukraine last week announced a humanitarian corridor in the Black Sea to release cargo ships that have been trapped in its ports after the termination of the main grain exports deal last month. Moscow has not indicated whether it would respect the shipping corridor, and shipping and insurance sources have expressed concerns about safety. Local broadcasters have said that the ship will anchor at the Ambarli port that's south of Istanbul. Now, turning back to Odessa, after a series of attacks on Ukrainian ports, residents say that they feel the country's now-defunct grain deal with Russia allowed them a modicum of protection, which is now also lost. Port officials say that they are working to expand alternative routes where they, at best, may only export roughly a third of the agricultural goods they did before the war. VOA's Heather Murdoch now continues with our coverage. Last weekend, it wasn't the ports that were hit in Odessa, but residential areas, including shops, hospitals, and schools. Many residents believe Russia's pullout from the grain deal which allowed Ukraine to keep exports, most notably a considerable portion of the world's food supply. Moving through the Black Sea has left them vulnerable and made their ports a target. Marina Plakova is a resident of Yuzhna, a picturesque city outside of Odessa, where their ports have stopped operating since Russia pulled out of the grain deal last month. She says she believes the grain deal gave them some protection from Russian assaults, and her family agrees. Others say the recent spate of attacks and the deal may be unrelated, as violence continued throughout the year in which the deal was in place. Now, the usual lines of cargo ships on the Black Sea are gone. But officials say food products are still moving, just at a much slower rate. And the consequences are vast. Dmitry Baranov is the deputy CEO of the Ukrainian Seaports Authority. So, 
He says Ukrainian farmers are reeling from the financial blow, and world food prices are expected to rise drastically. Global food prices rose as much as 20% when the Ukraine war began, but came back down after the grain deal was put into place. Prices are already again on the rise. The World Food Program relies on Ukraine for more than half of the wheat it uses to feed the poorest people in the Middle East and Africa. Inside Ukraine, officials say they may be able to export roughly one-third the amount they did in pre-war years. But that's not enough to keep the farming industry thriving and port cities alive. This is Oksana Vrotnikova, the secretary of the Yuzhny City Council. She says they are expecting a bumper crop this summer, but the end of the grain deal means most of it could go to waste. She says she wishes this success would come at a time where they could sell their products without risking lives. This year, winter is expected to be harder in Ukraine's port cities, with reduced incomes, a reduced availability of electricity, and attacks that seem to have intensified since the end of the grain deal. Heather Murdoch, VOA News, Odessa and Yuzhna, Ukraine. You're listening to VOA's Flashpoint Ukraine. I'm Steve Miller. Russia's central bank hiked its key interest rate by 350 basis points to 12% Tuesday, an emergency move to try and halt the ruble's recent slide after a public call from the Kremlin for tighter monetary policy. Reuters' Francis McGuire is up next. Russia's central bank took action to support the struggling ruble on Tuesday. It hiked its key interest rate by 350 basis points to 12%. The move comes after the ruble fell past the 100 threshold against the dollar on Monday. On the same day, President Vladimir Putin's economic advisor Maxim Oreshkin criticised the central bank. He blamed what he called its soft monetary policy for weakening the ruble. Hours after Oreshkin's public criticism, the bank announced the emergency meeting. Analysts largely agreed the move would not have a long-lasting impact, particularly as the war in Ukraine drags on. The Russian economy has been hit by Western sanctions and soaring military spending. Yevgeny Nadorshin is chief economist at PF Capital. The problem is that um, the instrument uh, which uh, the central bank has chosen is not the most efficient in the short term as I see it right now. But yes, it looks like uh, it was enough in order to set a barrier around uh, three-digit exchange rates. So uh, the market no longer tries to attack it. Uh, And uh, yesterday they passed, the dollar passed below, it slipped below that on the the news that uh, the central bank intends to intervene. Uh, but we don't see much of a success. In the morning, there were movements uh, towards like 95, 93 rubles per dollar, but uh, they sent it up uh, pretty quickly. The central bank last made an emergency rate hike in February last year with a raise to 20%. It then steadily lowered the cost of borrowing to 7.5% as strong inflation pressure eased. Since its last cut in September, The bank had held rates before an eventual 100 basis point hike to 8.5% at its last scheduled meeting in July. The next rate decision is due on September 15th. 
annual inflation is now above the central bank's 4% target and speeding up. Russia's widening budget deficit and their labour shortage have contributed to rising inflationary pressure this year. But the ruble's quick slide from around 70 against the dollar at the start of the year to more than 100 on Monday pushed the central bank to act. The bank blames the ruble's slide on Russia's shrinking current account surplus, which is down 85% year-on-year in January to July. That's Francis McGuire of Reuters News. Now to explore the significance of the Russian central bank's move and the broader context of the ruble on the world foreign currency market, I spoke with Elena Rubikova, non-resident senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics. We connected over WhatsApp as she visited the beach in Riga, Latvia. I began our conversation by asking what she made out of the Russian bank's rate increase. Well, my first reaction that um, the policy framework is beginning to disintegrate. So to me, that's the most important signal. Uh, As you know, Central Bank of Russia has invested a lot of time into strengthening their communication and their communication with the market, their writing of their policy statements, their sort of, so not, I wouldn't say forward guidance, but guidance to the market, what they should expect. This rate decision um, is completely unexpected. I think the size of the move is unexpected. And also there's been no new information that could have affected inflation since the last policy meeting. So it's also not clear why the emergency policy meeting. So whenever the central bank does something like that, and we have seen it, for example, from the ECB, right? That is an indicator that the central bank is not confident. They're worried. They're worried about financial stability risks, or maybe they're under pressure from the Ministry of Finance. What do you mean by disintegration? Because over the past year, the central bank has raised and and lowered rates uh, many times as as sanctions by Western allies have addressed various trade and and different aspects of the Russian economy. So what does disintegration mean, you know, to you so so our international audience can understand well indeed the central bank has reacted extremely professionally to the challenges of the last year so they have as you have pointed out they've been swift in terms of raising rates but also what helped them is capital controls and um, security services right you're much less likely to go and protest not being able to withdraw your foreign exchange deposits if you're afraid of security services right so that has also helped the central bank But also the most important part is they are central bank foreign exchange inflow was in excess of $200 billion. To put it in perspective, sort of this kind of size of the current account surplus, basically inflows over outflows of foreign exchange, um, this is almost double the previous record. And the previous record was during COVID, which we know is generally was an, an abnormal period globally. So there were almost three times any other record of foreign exchange inflows in 2022 last year. So that definitely has strengthened ruble and helped central bank manage the currency and the inflation. Now, speaking of foreign exchange, we have seen Moscow, you know, have closer ties to to India, to China, uh, to North Korea. They're they're reaching out to African countries as, as well. And I was wondering, you know, what does the 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 ruble's value mean in, in terms of Russia's ability to to really interact with these other countries on the world stage, whether it be transactions in, in rupees or the UN or other currencies. Well, after. After extreme capital controls imposed in spring last year, I think the central bank and the government have signaled that ruble will no longer be a reliably convertible currency. 
as you remember, I think the last time we saw capital controls was in early 2000s, and it was specifically under Putin's regime that they removed capital controls and tried to make it fully convertible and introduced inflation targeting, which is a very modern technique which Central Bank of Russia perfected so well that at some point even the governor got the award of euro money for her management skills of the of the economy of the central bank policy rates. Well, now it is very different. They have signaled that they're willing to use capital controls. And that is an important signal to anybody else who would like to hold potentially Russian currency. They might use it for transaction purposes, but they will be less likely to hold it because the day might come and as a foreign investor in ruble, you might not be able to exit. Also, for the transactions between China and Russia and Russia and India, there has to be natural flow. So, for example, if Russia gets um, gets um, rupee in return for sales of oil, it has to use it somewhere, right? And at the moment, Russia is not importing enough from India to make that useful. The situation for China is a bit different, but Chinese currency is also not convertible. So you're having two inconvertible currencies trying to dance. And of course, it's a cumbersome dance. Elena Rybakova is a non-resident senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics, as well as the vice president for foreign policy at the Kiev School of Economics. And she's joining us from the shores of Riga, Latvia. Elena, thank you very much for your time. Oh, thank you so much. A Russian-born U.S. citizen already in prison on a bribery conviction appears to now be facing charges of espionage. From the Associated Press, Lawrence Brooks has the details. Russian news agencies are reporting a Moscow court has authorized holding Gene Spector on the charges without detailing the case against him. Spector, formerly an executive at a medical equipment company in Russia, was sentenced to three and a half years in prison last September for enabling bribes for an aide to former Deputy Prime Minister Arkady Dvorkovich. There's been no immediate comment from Washington about the report. I'm Lawrence Brooks. This week, the U.S. ambassador to Russia was able to meet with Evan Gerskovich, an American journalist detained in a Moscow jail. The meeting was only the third such visit granted to Ambassador Lynn Tracy since the Wall Street Journal reporter's arrest in March. After their visit, the embassy in Moscow reported that, quote, Evan continues to be in good health and remains strong despite the circumstances, end quote. Gerskovich has been in Moscow's Lefortovo prison since his arrest on espionage charges March 29th. The journalist and the journal, as well as the U.S. government, deny the allegations. The U.S. State Department has classified Gerskovich as wrongfully detained. Currently, two American journalists are held overseas, Gerskovich and Austin Tice, a freelancer held in Syria for 11 years. Paul Beckett is the journal's Washington bureau chief. This is going to keep happening, and as long as regimes see advantage to them to doing it, they will do it more and more, and I think that's what we all have to respond to. And that's why we'd like to see the government not just get Evan and Austin uh, back, but figure out how to take the incentives out of doing this for the governments that participate in it. And Clayton Weimers, the executive director in the U.S. for the Watchdog Reporters Without Borders, says that the U.S. needs a better strategy to respond to these threats. The United States and indeed democracies around the world need to find ways to raise the cost of this kind of bad business. Uh, How do we impose stiffer penalties to disincentivize hostage taking in the first place? Otherwise, we're always just playing whack-a-mole and chasing the ambulance after it's already passed us by. 
A State Department spokesperson told VOA that the embassy officials will continue to provide all appropriate support to Gershkovich as well as his family, noting that once again the United States calls on the Russian Federation to immediately release Gershkovich as well as to release the wrongfully detained U.S. citizen Paul Whelan, who's a former U.S. Marine, that Russia sentenced to 16 years in prison on espionage charges that he and the U.S. government deny. Well, that's going to do it for us this week. And on behalf of everyone at VOA, we thank you for listening. Until next time, I'm VOA's Steve Miller. Be well, be safe, and good night. This is the voice of America. Washington, bam, 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 zip, D.C.